0: If you do happen to have a Bible, it would be helpful if you had it open uh, in front of you at Ruth chapter 1. If you want a Bible, there is one at the front. I wonder if you have read the book of Ruth. It just takes 25 minutes at a leisurely pace. So perhaps this afternoon, if you have not read it for a while, then you might like to do that and read through the whole story. In a way, I would love this morning... Just to be able to take, be taking us through the whole story, because it is of a piece, but um, Ruth chapter one is my allotted portion. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Ruth, uh, her example to us, this little book named after her, uh, but it's as much about you, and it's as much about your love for Ruth and your love for Naomi and your love for all the people in the book. So, Lord, help us to find your love for us, for each one of us, as we travel together through the book of Ruth. We pray in your name. Amen. Now, as I was preparing this uh, talk, sermon, there were two things sitting on the top of my mind, two recent things. One is an article on the program Love Island. I don't know if any of you have watched it. It's really a matter of conscience whether you watch it or not, an individual choice. But it is at the moment one of the most popular programs on television. It's been described as a 21st century take on blind date. But it goes a lot further than blind date as I understand it. It's about men and women looking for the perfect partner very much based I think on sexual experience. There is in this article which is in the magazine Christianity an account of a girl called Rosie who uh, slept with a man who then cast her aside for another one because that's how the program works. And the person who wrote the article said this. As I watched, or as I heard about Rosie, I thought about the fact that somewhere out there, Rosie has a father who would have been heartbroken to see his daughter spurned, used, and then thrown aside. How much more do we have a loving father who whose heart aches for us when we get hurt. I was very moved by that. But then on Wednesday, Terry and I listened to Elaine Storky's very fine lecture called A Scar Across Humanity. It was the Keswick Lecture for week three. If you haven't listened to it, please do look it up on YouTube and listen to it. It is absolutely heartbreaking as Elaine maps the abuse of women right across the globe in this 21st century. She includes in her lecture 10 devastating areas of the abuse of women. And there are at least two more she might have included. We are not exempt in this country with our slavery, our trafficking. And did you know that our country has one of the worst records for domestic violence in Europe? And that already this year dozens of women have been murdered in Britain by their partners. It truly is completely heartbreaking. So the book of Ruth sort of enters into this as a shining light. Her world was dark. Like today, in her world, women were abused and used and exploited. Now, as we work our way through the book, we need to remember that it is a story, that it tells us what actually happened And as we were reminded at Keswick, as such it is descriptive and not prescriptive. It tells us what happened, not how it ought to be. That's very, very important. And it's rooted in the culture of its day. The day of Judges. Ruth is set uh, in those dark 400 years after Joshua had led the people into the promised land and before the kings started to Take the stage. At a time 1500 to 1100 BC, that's a long time ago. And yet, and yet, we can find ourselves and our own culture and our own issues in this amazing book. It was a time of enormous political uncertainty just like today, a time when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Now if that isn't a description of some aspects of our culture and our world, then I don't know what is. The story has asylum seekers, food insecurity, emigration and immigration. It's a story about parenthood, and death and bereavement, future uncertainty, difficult family decisions, and their consequences. But it's also about human love and divine love, gentleness and righteousness, providence and humility, a waiting on God and the joyful outcome of that waiting a so wonder, no wonder, that this little book is loved and prized and treasured and has been a comfort and an encouragement to so many. We see God in all his redemptive love and grace. The God we've been singing about. Thank you, Dave. Those are truly lovely songs that we've just sung. The God of our going out and our coming in, as it says In Psalm 121, the God who travels with us even when we go into a far country. And the God who understands and works with our indecisiveness. The one, as it says in Lamentations, whose love is new every morning. I wonder if you open your eyes and say, thank you dear Lord this morning for your fresh love whose understanding is limitless, whose compassion does not fail, so that we might say every day of our lives, great is thy faithfulness. Even when the fig tree doesn't blossom and there is no fruit on the vine, this is the God to whom, like Naomi, we can pour out our anguish and lay bare our hearts. So first we have the decision to go. It's a big decision, isn't it? The decision to go. Food shortages, the need to feed your family, to give your children a chance in life, often reasons for emigrating. My brother-in-law went to Australia many years ago now because he thought his little girls would have a better future there and they've never come back. The cost and consequences of such a decision have to be considered. Is the place we are going to really better than where we are? Can I really leave my home and extended family? Do my wife and children agree? We thought we'd found a pastor, didn't we, a year ago, until he came against the fact that his family, his children, didn't really want to come. So what are the long-term consequences and the possible outcomes for my family when I make this big decision to get up and pack everything up and go? And as Dave reminded us, there are many people in our world today who are traveling along tracks because they felt they had no choice. about excuse me. Perhaps that's what Elimelech felt. There was a young couple called Bill and Nellie Davis who boarded a Union Castle liner on one bleak winter day in December 1952, bound for South Africa. And they took with them their two children, Gay, aged six, and Nigel, just six months old, for better or for worse. So Elimelech went down to Moab with his family because he heard there was food there. I wonder how long he agonized over that decision, laid it before God, talked it over endlessly, as you do with uh, Naomi. It would have been Elimelech's decision to go in the end and Ruth's duty to follow. And they went. But I want you to think about this. God went with them that's so important isn't it because all through life we look for guidance and sometimes we just don't know what is the best thing to do so we make a decision and how important it is to remember that God doesn't say okay you're going that way actually this way is really my will so you're on your own mate we don't have that kind of God And neither did Elimelech and Naomi. They had Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And the reason I wanted you to have your Bible in front of you, because you can see the Lord in capital letters in English, which signifies the great I am, the Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, who never leaves us. The states already told us they made a journey to Moab, now part of Jordan. I also looked it up. And it might have taken them seven to 10 days. It's actually where they originally came from, where God had brought them from into the promised land. But they've decided to go back with their two little boys, Marlon and Killion. And they ended staying there quite a long time. Moab became home to them. Elimelech died. We don't know how long Ruth had been there and Naomi had been there before Elimelech died. But imagine that as a tragedy. Imagine going to a new country, a new culture, where the people around you believed a different thing. And the very husband whose decision it had been to get you there then pops off. That's not easy, is it? So she was left with her two sons looking eventually for wives for them. And, of course, the Marlon and Kilian Moab was home, and so the boys marry Moabite women. And then they died. Goodness me, who could have imagined it? Three wives became three widows. You can only imagine how they tried to comfort one another. We know what it's like comforting Chris, don't we, in the loss of Joan, or comforting Ruth in the loss of Roger. But there was an extra dimension for Naomi. Was this her fault? Had all this happened, if they'd never left Bethlehem, if they'd never left If they'd never made that decision, perhaps none of this would have happened. And that's our human dilemma, isn't it? How many of us through our lives, when things have happened, have said, If only, or what if. God is not the God of our if-onlys or of our what-ifs. He is the God who comes with us in spite of if only." Or what if? Maybe she was angry with Elimelech. Or bitter towards God. And so comes the decision to go back. To go home to Israel. To go home to Bethlehem. She'd heard news that there was bread once again in the land of Israel. Yahweh, the God of covenant, love, had once again provided for his people this is the first time in the narrative that Yahweh is mentioned but of course it wouldn't be the first time it's hard if you take your children and you go and live in a foreign country with foreign gods please pray for our missionaries who do that and others who do that who take themselves off to work and live in a different country with a different religion but then still try and stay true to their own faith. It's hard. There are pressures. It seems to me that Ruth and Orpah, who were both Moabites, would have learned from Naomi about the God of covenant love. I think if they didn't know about that, if they didn't really love her, would they have wanted to go with her? might have said sure we've had enough of this mother-in-law this is an opportunity to go home mind you in that culture once a woman married of course she belonged to the family of her husband so she needed Ruth they needed Naomi to set them free they couldn't just up and off they belonged to her theirs was the responsibility to stay with her and hers was the right to claim that they stayed with her. And they made the preparations together to go back to Bethlehem. But then something wonderful happens. Naomi sets the girls free. I don't know why. Perhaps she suddenly realized that they needed to be set free. And so in an act of Huge sacrifice and much compassion. She says, go home, my daughters. I'm not going to hold on to you. She sets them free from their obligation to her and their dead husbands. Go home to your mothers. I can't imagine what the mothers who were about to lose their daughters were thinking. Go home to your mothers. Sometimes we have to set people free, don't we? We have to say to someone, actually, I want you to feel free to go. We're not always good at that. We tend to hold on and make people feel obligated, although as though they, they owe us something. And it does take compassion and love to set people free. My aunt has a little plaque in her kitchen and says um, if you love something set it free if it's yours it will come back to you and if it doesn't it was never yours in the first place. Go home, maybe you'll have another chance to marry. And she commits them in the text to the covenant love of Yahweh the great I am. Well let's not criticize Orpah. With many, many tears and much clinging to her mother in law, she decides to go home. I'm sure it was a hard, hard decision for her to make. That choice in the face of love and the bitterness of parting. We did it many times in Korea when we were missionaries and we had to go to the airport and let our very small children go off to school. It's very hard to let people you love go. Maybe Naomi thought, actually I'm going home to Bethlehem, it might be easier to go on my own than with these two foreign girls. I don't know. Or maybe Naomi thought, I'm having to cope with my own bereavement. My loss of a I don't know if I can cope with the bereavement of Ruth and Orpah as well. Because grieving, as we know, is a very personal journey that we have to get through. We travel it at different speeds and we emerge from it in different ways. We have two men friends whose wives both died. And they decided, as my own father did in a very short period of time, to remarry. The trouble was, children hadn't finished grieving for their mothers. And it was hard to see the father move on. So maybe Naomi thought, I can only cope with my own grief, not the grief of the girls. But now we come to Ruth's declaration and we're going to watch it. Was there ever a more beautiful declaration of love and loyalty? And that between two women. Precious words for me because I loved my closest Korean friend so much. And I remember walking on the mountainsides of Korea where many people are buried and saying those words to her. And for many years i wanted to be buried on a mountainside in korea the homecoming i want you to think of jacob going home to esau not sure what reception he would get and think of the prodigal son going home to his father not at all sure of the reception he would get. And now think of Naomi and Ruth going home to Bethlehem. We know Naomi was much changed, a lot older, careworn. And it's hard to go back, isn't it? It's hard to go back. And perhaps you feel you should never have left in the first place. The whole town was stirred. Could this be Naomi? Naomi means pleasant. That's the meaning of her name. And she says, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Could have been the prodigal son saying that, couldn't it? I went away full, but the Lord, the Lord has brought me back. Perhaps there are times in your life, as there have been in mine, when the Lord has brought me back Empty. The Lord afflicted me, and the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Well, if you had your Bible in front of you or the words on the screen, you would see the interweaving of two names for God. They're important in this context. What was Naomi really saying? She uses the word Lord, the God of covenant love but she also uses the word Almighty, Shaddai. We used to sing a song, didn't we? A beautiful song called El Shaddai, God Almighty. Three significant places in Genesis where God is called Shaddai. It's when he reveals himself to Abram and tells Abram he'll have a son. It's when Joseph's brothers have to take Benjamin back to Joseph and Jacob commends him to Shaddai and it's when Jacob, old Jacob, reflects on his son's son's lives and he attributes the rise of Joseph to El Shaddai El Shaddai, the God who can turn around the circumstances of my life even though they look impossible because he is also Yahweh, the God of covenant love. So as we move through the story, the beautiful story of Ruth, in a breathtaking way, we see how El Shaddai keeps his covenant of love and is able to do far more than either Naomi or Ruth could think or ask for. But we want to see Jesus. And on the cross of Jesus we see it is El Shaddai and Yahweh who together hold the Son of God on the cross. through the bitterest of pain. It's very much like taking a small child to a doctor or to a nurse for a vaccination. The vaccination hurts. That's the El Shaddai. But my mum is holding me. That's the Yahweh. And the two... Are there together and it wasn't the nails of course that held Jesus to the cross because he could have wrenched them out any time and let free but he knew that he had to walk through the valley of the shadow of death with both El Shaddai and Yahweh the God of covenant love before he could rise as the day spring from on high and blaze a trail for us to eternal life. You too will be experiencing the El Shaddai as well as the Yahweh in your life. May they together hold us on the path of love and trust. Amen.